destino ou oh, maldição Mandei nas meu coração Um do outro assim perdido Somos dois gritos calados Dois fados desencontrados Dois amantes desunidos Somos dois gritos calados Dois fados desencontrados Dois amantes desunidos Hello everyone and welcome back once again to the second episode of the second series of Grape Juice Wine and Jazz. What you just heard there was a modern, beautiful and heartbreakingly traditional rendition of Portugal's most famous musical export, Fado. Um, and it is something that we are going to be exploring today alongside uh, wines from this country in our episode's new format. Um, so alongside um, exploring the Douro Valley, which is something we've done before on uh, this episode, we are going to be exploring um, Portugal's musical history. Uh, it's kind of under-recognized and perhaps underappreciated um, <clears throat> for various reasons, um, most famous musical uh, export in this episode. So the Douro is something that we've explored before, and I've made no secret about the fact that Porto is um, my favorite wine, if I had to take it, and if, it had, if I had to choose. Um, that's because Porto was uh, the, first, um, the first wine that got me into wine, basically. One sip of Posash's um, White Porto, um, and I was head over heels in love. And that's interesting, because it's not usually white port that usually gets people into it or what people usually associate with it because of course now I usually drink vintage or uh, tinto um, which is red in Portuguese for red wine um, and in fact we are drinking a tinto today but it's not a porto it's duro and I will uh, discuss the difference between those two in the episode to come um, but before I do um, I'll just expand a little bit on more on port um, porto wine um, so white port is something that's very interesting and that people forget exists. There are different versions of it. For example, Nieport is producing a very dry white port. Personally, I'm not a fan of that. Um, Coburn's has also jumped on that bandwagon. Um, not making, a, you know, I think it's dry. It's not necessarily as dry as Nieport's um, in their kind of entry-level series, but it's certainly um, becoming a gin-type approach where... Um, I think Coburn's have now released a mixed white port and soda or lemonade or something like that. Um, so they're basically trying to introduce port as an aperitivo in the white port um, through white port, which I think is great. But um, if, if you had to pick one house that was perhaps held back or looked down upon, um, it would have to be Coburn's because Coburn's very, very early on in the 1950s and 60s, before any other house, decided to make itself commercial and start to appeal to a much wider market by promoting um, Coburn's Special Reserve, which you can still get in the shops today. Unfortunately, the quality of Coburn's Special Reserve, because it is so mass-produced, is um, akin to disinfectant or um, descaler. 
um, you could unblock your sink with it, unfortunately. And I don't like trashing wines like that, but unfortunately, Coburn's, uh, um, they make so much of it, and it's not too much of a high standard. Um, and you can get so much better ports, such as late bottle vintage, which I've discussed on the show before, which is a style of vintage wine that is left in the cask for longer before bottled, so it's a much more accessible style. It's basically a, a little bit of a catalyst in terms of aging. It still tastes like vintage style, but it, it feels more aged, even though it is fresher and younger. And you can get a really good one for about 15, 16, or, and even going up to 18 quid, um, a really, really good one. That's not that much money, you know, um, for a port, which is, you know, generally a good vintage port is um, 40 to 60 pounds, um, and often ranging up to the 80 to 100 pounds and even more limit. So um, port is expensive, but you can get value. But white port is very interesting. So you can get that dry style, and then you can get the sort of regular style in the middle, which is what posters are going for, which is my sort of epiphany wine. Oh, God, there's the notifications again. Let me silent. So unprofessional. And then above that, you have Lagrima, which is very, 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 very sweet. It's the sweetest of all white ports um, and one of the sweetest of all ports, full stop. Um, and it's a very, very interesting wine. Quite not many producers make it, but Krohn, Weiser and Krohn, for example, make it. Um, and it's absolutely great. Um, so, yeah, Lagrima is basically the, the most sweet you can get. Um, and the white grapes are not that known, um, but they are, according to VintagePort.se, which is a great source for um, tasting notes. This man has had every house and every vintage, so if you're looking for a reliable tasting note, they're not necessarily detailed, but they are emotional, and that's what matters. So you, the white grapes used in the Douro to make um, Porto Branco are grapes such as Viozinho, Malvasia Fina, Guveo, Codega, and Rabigato. Never heard of any of them before, but, you know, that's cool. Um, so basically, Lagrima sort of roughly translates as teardrop port. And of course, um, when you swill wine round in a glass and you see the legs coming down, that's the sugar. Um, and obviously, the higher the sugar content in a wine, the more that those legs are going to be more prominent in the glass. So um, Lagrima has earned that name because, of course, the, because of the sugar content, those tears or legs are so prominent in the glass. Um, so yeah, white port is fascinating, and so I just thought I'd put that out there. But now let's move on to the difference between Douro and Porto. So basically, um, there is a big institute governing the entire... Um, wine region of Douro. Um, the, the wine region is called Douro, and that's where Porto and Douro wine are produced. Um, but the Instituto dos Vinhos do Douro e Porto is the big iron fist that rules um, the, the, the winemaking in the Douro. And it was established, um, I think, initially by the Marquis de Pombal, who is, of course, the famous uh, nobleman who rebuilt af uh, Lisbon after the earthquake in the 18th century. Um, and the Instituto is um, has its sort of that's the name of it now, but in loose terms, the body, the sort of controlling, overseeing of Douro pr production, um, was established by Pombal, and you know, of course, he's a major figure in the making of modern Portugal, what it is today. He kind of introduced the sort of artistic and national renaissance, you could say, um, after the after the initial. Um, period that Portugal is famous for, which is, of course, discovery, colonialism. One of the first people to try to get into Japan in the 16th century, you know, they were intrepid explorers, and of course, Brazil. Um, and the very, very interesting thing is that with the wine we're actually having today, um, 
it's uh, it's actually harks back to that initial period of Portuguese history. So it's very much um, the two, uh, you know, the old the themes of the old Portuguese history being ruled over by the kind of new post eighteenth century history, which is quite quite a nice blend and sort of shows all sides of of Portugal. Um, so yeah, so basically, Douro wine is a very very recent addition to the Douro region. Uh, funnily enough, um, Porto is the sweet fortified wine that we all know and love, which is around 20% alcohol, and the, 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 the minimum amount of alcohol is 17.5. Um, it, and it is a famous wine made from a variety of grapes, which we will get into later, where the fermentation is stopped by a spirit, usually brandy, um, either French or Portuguese usually. Um, uh, to retain the natural sugars and keep the, the sweetness of the wine. And it makes one of the most beautiful, emotional, satisfying wines in the entire world, and I think my favorite wine. Um, and that port basically took off in the early to mid um, 18th century. Because one of the first porthouses, Wars, which claims to be the oldest porthouse, was established in 1680, which is when um, the British basically started to get interested in Porto wine. Um, basically, it's it's when Porto took off in in Britain and then and therefore internationally, and you know to this day Britain isn't even the biggest port market. It's France. Um, the French love Porto. Um, so basically, basically I don't know the exact war, and this is terrible, but. Um, the British relied on um, French wine. That was the main drink of choice in Britain. And, um, uh, you know, I've talked about in the Chateau Bataille episode or another Bordeaux episode, I'm not quite sure which one, about the fact that England did actually own Bordeaux under Edward the Black Prince. So there is a very, very strong connection with Britain and Bordeaux because it's a port that's very close and obviously it makes sense that wine would go to the UK. But then um, uh, the, the English and the French had started having little spats in the, uh, in the 17th century, which meant that that trade wasn't so agreeable or feasible. Um, and that continued up until, you know, as you know, the 19th century. And now, of course, we're all great friends. Um, but then it meant a lot. So Britain had to look elsewhere for wine. And what was the next best thing? You know, switch a few miles down to, to the next major port, which is um, Porto. Um, making very famous Portuguese wine. So in the late 18th century, houses such as Wars and Quas Harris, who is a lesser-known one, of which, who's which, um, of which I had there 77 recently, um, said, you know, let's go to Porto and see what we got there. And then it took off in the 18th century, and the rest is history. Um, port is a huge part of British culture. After dinner drink, usually, um, is used traditionally to toast the Queen, um, and, you know, is kept in vast quantities and drunk every night in aristocratic households and in regular households as well. Um, the, the, from a Portuguese point of view, Porto is drunk not usually in the evening, but at lunchtime. Um, I did that today, in fact. I had a glass of Porto at lunchtime. And let me tell you, it invigorates you. It completely enlivens you. Uh, just one glass, mind you. Um, you know, a fairly sizable one, but one or two glasses of Porto will just brighten up your day at about one or two o'clock or maybe even three when I had it like a late lunch you know and then you dine at nine or something um, but Porto is a huge part of Portuguese culture it's something everyone loves everyone drinks it there is always a bottle of Porto around um, and so basically that is the heart and soul of the Portuguese wine industry you have other wines such as Bucelas, um, Bucelas, I think 
um, which is a famous white wine, um, which is, was also favoured by the British. And if you read um, Oshmayash by uh, Esha de Queiroz, um, which is a famous Portuguese 19th century tome about the kind of decline of the old Portuguese monarchy before the revolution in the early 20th century, um, they're often drinking Chambertin, which is a very, very famous red burgundy, um, and Bucelas as well, but not much Porto, which is very, very annoying, um, because uh, having spoken to a few Portuguese friends, to this day, Portugal has a very distressing attitude of anything that is not from Portugal, or that is exported, imported, sorry, anything that is foreign is good. Portuguese have a huge obsession for British culture, um, and, and it's a shame because reading um, even the and which is from the late 19th century, there's a terrible um, lack of self-confidence and self-hatred among the Portuguese, which is not acceptable um, and which I don't like. And they, they feel that they're not worthy. They feel that they're s savage fado singers. Um, and I think fado is anything but savage, as we shall discover in this episode. But basically, I, I want to I want to promote and export the beauties of Portugal, which is no better embodied than in Porto wine, um, because it's uh, port is like unlike any other wine, imbued with a great deal of connotation and preconception, which is just so harmful. Port is usually um, associated with. Um, overweight, ruddy-faced, conservative-voting, pheasant-eating, you know, estate-owning, uh, hardy, aristocratic capitalists who, you know, have no moral compass and or um, will to be charitable, which is the opposite of what Porto is. Porto is a generous drink. It's, Porto is about giving. It's about abundance and, you know, it's about beauty. Um, and so I'm here to smash that preconception. Um, but anyway, I could talk for hours about the benefits and beauties of Porto, but that's not the focus of today's episode in terms of wine. So today we are talking about Douro Tinto, which is still wine from the Douro region. And until very recently, it was still wine from the Douro was regarded with a very sceptical eye because Porto had always been the mainstay of Douro wine production, and still wines were kind of not looked on favourably. You know, in the, until very recently, if you wanted a still wine, you went to France. And that's the end of the story. You know, if you want, if you, Porto is all very well, but if you wanted a non-sweet still wine, you go to Burgundy or Bordeaux, and that's the end of that. Um, but Jancis Robinson has a rather interesting little blurb preamble on the Douro. Um, and she says uh, that to some port producers, such Douro DOC table wines are heresy, but to quality conscious wine drinkers, such as us, they are intriguingly satisfying with a concentration of flavor many winemakers elsewhere would kill for. Port producer Ferreira produced the prototype Barça Velha, and it still commands very high prices. But an exciting range of arguably more sophisticated, dense, crimson table wines are now available. In fact, almost all port producers now make fine table wines too. So that's a very interesting thing. Um, basically, the Instituto de Vinos de Douro e Porto that I was talking about really do rule with an iron fist. And single quinta villages, uh, vintage port, for example, which is a very Burgundian approach, approach where a vintage port is made from a vintage year, like classic vintage port, but from a single site. Um, it took until the 1990s for that to be officially recognized as a vintage port. Um, and so that's why you can't really find single quinta vintage ports um, from before the 90s, really. Um, 
you can if you look. There are exceptions such as Quinta do Quinta Rorish, um, which is a famous, famous old port, and of course um, uh, Quinta do Nacional, um, Quinta do Noval. Sorry, um, those are a few exceptions, but. From big producers, producing small single quinto vintage port was not regarded as um, proper vintage port until very, very recently. And the same goes for Duro Tinto and Duro Branco. But thankfully, a lot of port houses are producing it. The first red port that I properly enjoyed was um, by a producer called Quinta Nova de Nossa Senhora do Carmo, um, which is the, the new estate of Our Lady of Carmo. Um, a wonderful small port producer in the Douro, and they have a huge big restaurant, you know, big and fancy, you can go and get pissed in the middle of the afternoon, or the late morning, should you wish. Um, and it's great. And they make a lot, a lot of still wines. Um, occasionally Tanner's wine merchants have one of their red blends, which you should go and try. But the thing is, I've actually never had a Douro Tinto, which is just so bad. But basically, a lot of producers are now making those those still wines, but a lot aren't, because um, as I said, um, you know, in the last episode, actually, Port Bordeaux, for example, are all about the blend. Um, it's all about the blend of different quintas, you know. For example, you know, each each producer has a, a base, a backbone quinta, which dictates their style. For example, Dao is Quinta do Bonfim, um, Graham's is Quinta dos Malvedos. Um, but then they also have other ones, such as Daos has Quinta do Senora Ribera, I think that's the name, um, which is the kind of secondary one, and Smith Woodhouse has Quinta de Madalena. But they're always blended with one or more Quinta, and usually that's judicious depending on the year, ripeness, you know, um, which means that they're able to declare a vintage year more easily. Um, so the single Quinta mentality is a bit, ooh, you know. Um, but the thing is, with Duro Tintos, but so basically my point is, um, new styles of wine, even vintage port produced from a single uh, vineyard or, or quinta, let alone uh, still wine from the Douro, has taken a long time to come around and be accepted. But now it has. Um, there are a lot being produced, and I'm very, very excited to delve into that. Um, the other exciting thing um, with the Douro, um, which uh, you know applies to both um, Douro and Porto wine, is the grapes. And the grapes are fascinating. Um, the main ones are uh, Tinta Francesco, uh, Turiga Nacional, Tinta Rorisha, Tinta Barocca, Tinta Sao, and Turiga Franca. So Turiga Francesca and Turiga Franca are two different grapes. Um, now, if you go to this website called MWH Wines, um, uh, which is Ma uh, Mike Hall, great vintage port expert. He has a huge selection of vintage port for very reasonable prices. I've bought from him many times, and he's extremely knowledgeable great at communicating, so that's a really good source of good value vintage port from someone who is storing it well, looking at the condition, you know, it's not just an auction. Um, even my beloved merchant Lane Wheeler are not as meticulous as he is in terms of port. He's very, very much a specialist. Um, and he has a little article in his blog section about port grape varieties uh, called the Vintage Port Grape Guide, which you should definitely give uh, a look. Um, but the thing about our, our Duro... Um, Tinto today is that it's made up from many of the same grapes. So it's made up from Turiga Franca, Nacional Rorish Amarela, and Tinta Barocca. So we'll go through each of them. So first of all, Turiga Franca um, is very interesting because two of these grapes are actually well known to um, France and Spain. So for example, Turiga Franca, which seems to be the main component, 
um, is uh, known uh, more widely as Trousseau, which is uh, one of the, the grapes of the, of the Jura region in France. Um, so it's known for being dark and powerful with quite high acidity, um, and, it, and it adds a kind of freshness and depth. Um, and it's usually one of these famous sort of supporting player that adds a kind of backbone. Um, uh, but, it, uh, you know, Mike is obviously saying that it's getting more attention as its charms and capabilities become better known. So that's an interesting thing. So basically, it's the Portuguese name and version of other grapes. And the other grape that is included in this in our blend is Tinto Riche, which is basically the Portuguese name for Tempranillo. Now, this is the interesting thing. Um, Portuguese Tempranillo is not something that's well known, but Tinto Riche is, which is, you know, it's the same thing. There is a wine in Tesco now. If you look, um, and it's 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 a beautiful bottle. It's got a yellow cap, and on the front, it's got um, uh, a kind of um, watercolor drawing of the Lisbon um, trams, um, and it's a Vinho Regional Lisboa, which is the, the kind of uh, big region um, above Lisbon where they produce a lot of indigenous grape varieties. Um, but that is for the vast majority Tinto Riche, um, and while it, you know, that's a good and bad thing in my opinion because while it's obviously um, you know, a, a Portuguese wine made in Portugal from Portuguese grapes. I do feel, though, that they're trying to go for a kind of Rioja-type vibe, because I think it's maybe even up to 70-80% Tinto Rorish. Um So I think that they may be appealing to the kind of Rioja palette. But, you know, and that's a great thing. And that doesn't mean... Tinto Rorish isn't invalid as a grape just because it's Tempranillo, you know. You should be making a variety of Tinto Rorishes in Portugal. That's great. But I do feel that they're sort of slightly tapping into that already established Iberian palate. Um, and I just don't want people to drink that and think that, oh, Portuguese wines are just the same as Spanish. We'll just go back to our Gran Reserva, you know. Because there is so much, dis so much more indigenous flair to discover. And so while, so while it's amazing that there's a wine like that with such a beautiful label that is very clearly Portuguese, I would like to see some other grape varieties taking the four with that. Um, so that's Tinto Rarish, basically. We all know what Tempranillo is. Big, bold, bright, um, fruity. Um, and, you know, it, it gives a, ar aromatics and fruit and also a good bit of structure as well. And we've also got Turiga Nacional, which is a very, very famous grape. Um, and it's, you know, it, it loves the heat. It really loves power. Um, and Quinto de Nova that I was talking about um, uh, earlier has a very famous wine called Quinto de Nova Nacional, which is made from very, very old, 100-year-old um, Turiga Nacional vines and produces a really dense, dark, beautiful Porto. Um, so it's very thick-skinned, low-yielding, dark and concentrated and basically offers the power behind a lot of Porto. So already we've got a big blend of like blockbuster red players here. And the last one that Mike mentions that's included in our blend, Tinta Barocca, is he compares it, he says it's like Merlot in Bordeaux or Grenache in the Rhone. It's not a grape that's noted for its high tannin content, but it is one that can help round out the austerity of other grapes. So Barocca is more about um, plushness and temperance rather than power because you know we've already got a lot of as i said big blockbuster players in there so i think baraka has been thrown in in order to round things out a bit and make it not too aggressive in its youth so that's rather interesting um so yeah anyway let me actually introduce what the wine we're tasting today is um it's it's a wine called um invenciel or invincible um and it's made by this this little company called compagnie de vignos invenciel 
um, the Company of Invincible Wines, which is quite sweet. Um, and they make a Durabranco and a Tinto. Um, the Tinto is 14.5%, um, and they're giving they're giving pH, they're giving volatile acidity, they're giving you the amount of um, sulfur dioxide that they're using, which is pretty damn cool, and also the sugar levels. Um, but I think that this website called Globus.ch, which is, a, I believe, a German um, wine website, is giving you more um, information about the grapes, etc. Um, but Compagnie de Vinos Invenciel is very interesting. There's a little blurb about them, um, and it's a very, very recently established um, company. Uh, the vintage that we have here is 2018. So Rita and Markes and Mark Rita Markes and Mark Kent founded Compagnia de Vinos Invencivel in 2020, so only last year. The two winemakers who had previously collaborated in 2015, 16, 17 in South Africa and 18 and 19 in Portugal embrace now a bigger commitment and acquiring an estate in Caixas do Douro. This is the first joint property and the home of the brand. It is also where two wines, a white and a red, called Invincible Numero Dois, which is the one we're having today, were assembled. Their labels represent the fight between Adamastor and the Portuguese sailors of the Age of Discovery. To complete the newly created portfolio, they're also presenting a wine from Vinhos Verdes Natural Mystic. So that's pretty damn cool. So it looks like these wines, when they were put in the cask, the Companhia de Vinhos um, in Vencivel wasn't even established yet. Um, so basically, uh, these 2018 Branco and Tinto were blended when the company was established by Rita and Mark, which is pretty damn cool, and I think that's great. Um, uh, it's 25 quid retail at St. Andrew's Wine Company at the moment, um, and the, it's, it's a beautiful, heavy bottle, very tall, very elegant, and it does hark back to this kind of earlier period of Portuguese history, which is very, very interesting. Obviously, imperial themes coming from a, you know, a more left-leaning liberal university. Um, we've been taught that empire is bad, and of course it is bad. But it's just very interesting that that kind of shade of history is being promoted on a modern, modern wine label. And although I don't necessarily support the political argument behind it, I think that's pretty cool. Um, so already I'm very, very intrigued by what's going to happen with this vino. Um, so without further ado, let me shut up because it's nearly been half an hour. And whenever we get to the Douro, I always talk for a half an hour. And um, get back to the music side of things. So in terms of music, today we're, we're discovering and exploring Fado, which is um, listed by UNESCO, obviously, as one of the two um, kind of traditional protected musical a genre that you get in Portugal and it's a very very beautiful genre um, the other one is called Cante Alentejano which is a, a f another form of traditional music um, from the Alentejo region in, um, in, uh, in Portugal um, but Fado is perhaps the more known um, uh, the, the more traditional one um, which you associate with Portugal. And it's fascinating because it's basically uh, centered around this very, very specific emotional Portuguese concept of saudade or longing, um, which some people put down as nostalgia, but it's really a kind of, it's a feeling of loss, um, basically, or missing something. Um, I A few people have described it to me in different ways, but I kind of mark it down as, um, you miss an experience and you want to relive it, uh, missing a, a certain event in your life. So rather than it being nostalgia where you kind of like romanticize a certain period or thing or um, piece of literature, blah, 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 period, lost thing. It's more about, a, it's a very personal, emotional thing where you miss or 
miss something and you want it back and you're sad that it's gone and that you can no longer relive it, basically. Um, Bossa Nova, which is my favorite um, musical genre, uh, obviously the, the heart of Brazil, is also based on Saudade, but of course over there they call it Saudade. Um, you know, Bossa Nova is either about Saudade or Brazil, um, and uh, Fado is purely about Saudade. Um, the the thing is, I usually listen to Bossa Nova with Porto because for me, Porto is a very, very happy drink and Fado is very, very sad a lot of the time. But we're going to kind of break those boundaries a little bit with the songs today. Um, but we will play one Bossa Nova song to fade out. But since we are in the Duro, we're going to have to stick with Fado, which is fine. Um, so today we're exploring two um, Fadonistas, um, or female Fado singers. Um, who are very, very, very famous. Um, the first one is still recognized, sorry, not Fadonista, Fadista, um, Fado singer, um, usually female. Um, you do have male Fado singers, but Fadistas are kind of, you know, ruling the roost to this day. So basically the most famous um, Fado singer to this day is Amalia Rodriguez, um, and she died in the early 2000s, I believe, and she is absolutely iconic. And then the, the kind of most popular modern Fadista is uh, Marisa, uh, who you heard initially. So we were playing Marisa's song, um, Maldisao, which means curse or spell put upon someone. Um, and Amalia did sing that, I believe, but I wanted to play um, Marisa's version because it showed the very, very specific type of that kind of slow, plodding, walking, deep, deep, deep that kind of Portuguese guitar and that sound that you heard is Portuguese guitar which is now synonymous and famous throughout the world because of Fado um, and uh, I, that was just a perfect example of the uh, you know the that that kind of closed vowel Portuguese melancholy wail that you get in Fado but also the showcasing the Fado guitar which obviously brings everything together but now we're going to play and compare not necessarily com well not necessarily compare but just show you uh, the more traditional songstress, um, Heart of Portugal, Fadista, uh, Amalia Rodriguez in her song Come Que Vos, which is um, in what voice, what voice, um, in which voice, that kind of thing. Um, so I hope you enjoy that very much. And we shall come back afterwards to taste um, Compagna de Vinos Invencivels Número 2, uh, Duro Tinto, from 2018. Aproveitar 
triste quero viver Pois se mudou em tristeza Pois se mudou em tristeza A alegria do passado A alegria do passado De tanto mal a causa Amor puro Devido a quem de mim Tenho ausente Porque a vida em mais Dele aventuro Porque a vida em mais Dele aventuro Com que vós Chorarei Meu triste fado Que em tão dura paixão Me sepultou Que amor Não seja dor Que me deixou Deixou o tempo de meu bem desenganado, de meu bem desenganado, desenganado. And there we have the legend herself. I'm singing a beautiful rendition of Fado, which really, you know, beautifully encapsulates the, the truly sad nature um, and the tragic nature of Saudade um, and the, the emotion in the, the voice and the Portuguese accent just really underlines that. Um, absolutely gorgeous. Now let's move on to the all-important tasting section. This wine has now been decanting for an hour and a half, so all those big blockbuster grapes have had you can hear it swelling around here. I've had plenty of time to unravel. Ooh. And I think we're really going to get um, a full expression. Um, obviously, you know, we'll be tasting this over a fair few minutes, so hopefully it should open up a little bit more in the glass. But either way, it's had plenty of time to express itself. Um, immediately, apart from everything, and I know this is probably, um, <laughs> a, you know, a, a bit of a given, but it does look like a port. The color looks like a port. It has this sort of deep, um, not garnet or ruby, but just sort of black currant. Um, you know, it's it's not remotely ruby, like a kind of a merlot or a uh, or a you know or a tempranillo would be, um, or a chianti. It's very much dark cassis, black currantie, buried color, um, which is just beautiful and very very duro. So I'm just pouring a bit in the glass now. Um, and it's already, I can tell that it's, it's a thick boy, you know, it, they're not holding back in terms of texture or anything like that. Um, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful colour in the glass. Um, so I'm just going to swill it around, uh, see what the sugar content is with these legs. Um, now I think on the, uh, on the website they said that they had added a bit of sugar, which is, you know, 
nothing major. Um, but it's, you know, it's it's odd because, you know, it is the color of Porto, but I'm swirling it around and we're not getting any major legs here. There is, you know, there's a fairly pronounced line. Um, actually, you know, a, a really well-pronounced line. Um, but, you know, obviously nothing compared to Porto. Um, so I'm just giving a, a good airing. I'm very, very excited for this because I've never actually tasted, you know, <laughs> Duro grapes that have gone to the, the naturally full fermentation, even though this is, you know, still 14.5%. Um, it, it's pretty damn cool, uh, you know, and it's it's quite exciting because, you know, this is obviously a region I don't know like the back of my hand, but that I associate with emotionally. Um, so I'm very, very excited to see what happens. So I'm not even going to ramble on. I'm just going to stick my nose in and give you an impression of um, Numero Deutsch's Inventivel, or Inventivel Numero Deutsch. Uh, 2018 vintage, um, which was a banger for Porto, by the way. So, you know, a good vintage in the Duro. And see what we get. Ooh. It's powerful. It's big. There is really a, a fair bit of alcohol. I mean, that 14.5 is coming out. But it, it's funny because I'm smelling that alcohol, but there's no sugar behind it, which is so odd and um, not what I'm used to. Hmm. So, I think when you smell a red wine that's beginning to open up, you can definitely smell a hot climate, but you can usually immediately tell whether something is French or not. Um, usually, usually Italian and Spanish wines, to a greater extent, have this kind of, this sort of more savoury heat. Um, this sort of brighter, um, sort of more herbal, dark. Um, it's just it's just a very, very specific smell that just smells hotter and more exotic and that just isn't French. And you definitely get that from this. Perhaps it's a distinctly Iberian smell. You never know. <laughs> um, but I'm smelling this and I'm like, whoa, this is not French. You know, if it's not Portuguese, then it's going to be Spanish. So it's giving me Iberian vibes. Um, and what you're getting is it's not necessarily the sweet cassis that you would expect from, you know, a Bordeaux or something. It's very much dark cherries, dark chocolate. It's so dark and solid right now. A lot, you know, a lovely bit of chocolate in there. And then a touch of something like oregano, thyme, you know, a little bit of herbs. But it's not a kind of grassy, leafy herbality that you would get in, a, in an Italian wine. It's a bit more muted. But it's just, it, it's quite savoury. The sweet fruit is there, but it's still so closed right now. Um, but you never know, the, the palate may be explosive. Um, but it feels ripe, it feels balanced, it doesn't feel harsh. You know, it, it, I'm anticipating, fingers crossed, a quite silky, smooth procession through the palate. Um, uh, you know, the acid isn't like, woohoo, I'm here, you know, it's, it's not remotely like that or anything. Um, so yeah, a very, very interesting nose, you know. Not closed, just dark and big, and but not not meaty, just dense and compact. Turn off notifications. Um, 
It's not, it's not like chewy and meaty like some wines would be. Um, you know, not even like you know a Gevrey Chambertin would be, for example. It's just dense and fruity, which is very, very Douro and very, very Porto. You know, I even, with that dense fruit, and I am even getting hints of that sort of juicy black currant that you would get from smelling a young Porto. Um, so let's put it in the palate and see what happens. Let's see if it's going to give me that silk, that power, um, and hopefully a long finish. Um, but I'm putting too many expectations on this wine, and I haven't even tasted it yet. Let's give it a go in the old Palatio. Ah! <laughs> that is amazing. Wow. Woo, that alcohol. <laughs> Let me take another sip so I can calibrate my thoughts here. Okay. I can say now that I'm very, very happy about the fact that this is so Porto. It just, it feels like a dry Porto. It feels like the Douro. Because it's 14.5, I'm still getting that high alcohol back there. Because this is a hot half year. And a beautiful bit of um, new oak at the back. Very, very Rioja-like new oak. Oh! <laughs> the tannins are not aggressive and it feels just polished enough and rounded enough um, by the Tinta Shao and, and the, the touch of Tempranillo in there that it's not obtrusive, it's not dangerously overbearing let me just check, I got those round grape varieties right um, yeah um yeah, the the Tinta Shao and also um, the the Tariga Franca, um, giving something like a bit of freshness, um, and then um, the Barocca coming in as that kind of Merlot component, giving it polish. But then the Tinto Rorish, the the the, the Tariga Nacional, and then the Tariga Francesca are all like, <coughs> you know, like we're here to play. Um, just a beautiful balance of power and polish which is what a good Porto is all about. So, if I were to put this wine in the context of big old reds, whew, I would say that this is halfway between a Rioja and a Poyac. And I hate generalizing like that, but I just want to, for people who haven't had Douro wine, and for who me saying, this is such dense fruit is not gonna mean anything, um, I, I wanna try and contextualize this as best as possible. So what you get from this is, first of all, 
dense, sweet, ripe cassis, which is what you want from a good Poyac. Plus a slightly cedary, ever so slightly woody mid palette, and then a lovely creamy new oak finish, which is what everyone wants from Bordeaux. What makes it different and fun is that brightness, which is something you don't get in Bordeaux. The thing that is magical about a Rioja, and why it will always be unique, is it tastes like sunshine. Bordeaux is about classic elegance and sort of silky refinement. Rioja is about sunshine, like literally, no matter how meaty a Rioja is, it will always have this bright, sunny, vanilla-y, sweet element that you just don't quite get in Bordeaux. And I feel like this wine, if I, in terms of still wines, and this is also what Porto does, by the way, it, it combines condensed, dense, blockbustery, punchy, uh, weighty ripeness with this kind of dancing brightness. Um, This isn't necessarily dancing, but my god, it's tasty. That kind of silky polish that I was hoping for is absolutely there. I think in terms of grape variety, if I were to break this down, um, Tariga Francesca is obviously a big part of this because it's providing that porty backbone, that sweet, ripe density. But I will also say that there is definitely a good helping of Tempranillo in here as well. Because you, alongside the density, you do get that sort of bright, almost, not savoury, but blueberry, almost umami brightness that you would get. So I think that there is a very, very healthy helping of Rorish in here, perhaps even 30-40%. But I'm glad that there's no more of that, otherwise it wouldn't feel Portuguese enough for me. So my guess is, so reminding myself of the of the blend here, we've got Franca and Nacional, which is providing that dense black currenty um, uh, power. We've got Rorish, which is the Tempranillo, which is providing the bright, dancing, oaky brightness. And then we've got Amarela and Barocca, and Barocca providing that polish. So I do think... Um, ...that Nacional and Francesca are like, woohoo, you know, we're here. But I still think that there is a good amount of Tempranillo in here. But it is undeniably Duro undeniably those grapes maybe it's something like you know third it could be you know 30 francesca 30 nacional that making up the main body and then it could be a, another 30 could be tempranillo or rorish sorry um 
Um, and then those other grapes are, are thrown in for that polish. But there is no denying that, you know, Barocca is giving, you know, because Barocca is, is sort of, you know, as that, as Mike was saying, that sort of Merlot-y Grenache element that's providing aromatics and, and lightness. I wouldn't say that this was particularly aromatic or light, you know. The nose is not exploding with with aroma. It's very dense, not closed, just very sort of dense and dark and and concentrated. So I would say that there's not too much of that going on. But the main players here are undoubtedly Francesca Nacional and, and Rarish. Do you know, uh, I do think that <clears throat> if there wasn't a healthy helping of Rarish in here, then, and it, obviously I'm tasting this in a dry wine explicitly, in a in a Porto, I wouldn't be able to taste that classic blueberry. I wouldn't be able to get that sort of um, more, less concentrated, oaky brightness, because the sugar would be masking that, and sugar masks a lot in wine, as we know. Um... So I'm noticing it more here, and I'm not quite sure how I feel about it. The buttercream finish is just still absolutely delectable. And I'm going to pour myself a top up. <laughs> so let me try and rationalize my thoughts here, folks. Um, in terms of quality, drinkability, and duroness. 10 out of 10, 500 brownie points for each category. Um, this is what I hoped a still Douro would taste like, because it tastes like wine from the Douro. Um, it feels like that. Um, uh, the blend is really judicious, and you know the year ripe enough um, that we're getting a nice kind of sweet polish to it. Um, and I think the oak is big but not too big because these grapes are you know thick boys you know they can stand a good bit of oak but you can very much feel it which is a lovely way to finish it and it's a really lovely lovely long finish the oak gives way to the the dense Nacional um, Francesca um, Cassis, um, which is a classic port finish as well, and I'm really, really happy about that. I'm absolutely loving it. Um, I think it's a beautiful effort. I think it's really, really representative and just quality, you know? I think it's well worth 25 quid. Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, considering you can get a Porto for 18 quid, I mean, that doesn't really matter because this is such a different wine, but 25 is a lot, you know, that that's a lot of money. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't think many people are, you, you, there aren't many Duro Tintos out there that, that can be this concentrated and this amazing and wonderful. And this is their first vintage, I think, right? Yeah. So, 
If you like Bordeaux, but you want something a little bit more, you know, you know, something a bit more fun, a bit more lively, or if you love Porto and want something dry, ding ding ding, Douro Tinto is the way to go. Um, and I'd love to. I think I'm actually going to consider doing the Douro Branco as well because that will be even more interesting because. I don't think I could even compare that to a white port in the same way. You know, there's going to be oh, there's going to be honey and ripe stone fruit, blah 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 blah. But you get that in every white wine that has a bit of sugar in it. You know, um, every dry white wine you're going to eventually get honey. Um, apart from you know, a few <laughs> Jura, I'm looking at you. Um, but I, you know, this is really really fascinating to me. I'm trying to put it in a box right now because I want to extol the virtues of it to people who, uh, you know, who will know what I'm talking about when I say halfway between Bordeaux and Rioja. But it is very, very much its own thing. And that is what I'm happy about. And you can tell, as I said before, that I am skeptical about that that sort of, that hefty helping of Tempranillo in there. But at the end of the day, as I said, it's probably exactly the same helping of ten of Rorish that would be Rorish being Tempranillo, let me remind you. That would be in a Porto, just I guess would be masked by the sugar. Um you know, eighty percent Rorish would be like, Okay, come on guys, I think we you know, similar climates, let's let's get back to basics here. But I do think that they haven't gone too far that way. And it, at the end of the day, it probably does mean that this is more accessible now and that I can actually drink it, um, you know, two years after the vintage. Two, three years. And also, it almost has like a Zinfandel character. Where it's dense, but it has that kind of hotter feel to it. But it's not herbal or savory in any way. It's very much sweet and ripe, which is, you know, what the Duro is all about. So that I'm very happy about. A very, very, very interesting wine. I'm extremely pleasantly surprised. And there's going to be many, many more surprises to come, I think, with this one as it opens up over today and tomorrow. Now, if you'll allow me to calibrate my thoughts on this one a little more, folks, we will return to the other strand of this episode, which is Fado. Um, and having heard some Emilia Rodriguez, we're going back now to Marisa, the, the modern fadista of, of uh, Portuguese fame. And we're having another one of her songs called Melhor de Mim, which is, uh, translates as The Best of Me. But this is rather interesting because this is... Um, oh my god, I am so sorry. This is uh, the other side um, of... Marisa's fame and her individual style, where she very, very much promotes and wants to continue the long line of traditional fado, as you heard um, in the first song, Maldisal. But in Melior de Mime, she goes for a much more poppy, more modern contemporary vibe, but still very much includes all the, the classic facets and tropes and conventions of fado. So this is a very, very, very interesting number, folks. And I hope you enjoy it very much, because she's an icon. Um, if you watch her singing live, um, and also watch Amalia, Amalia Rodriguez singing live, it's something really, really, really arresting and beautiful. So I hope you enjoy Melior de Mime. And we shall be back afterwards to give our final thoughts and pensivenesses on, on, on this Duro Tinto, because um, 
I think it's something that has impacted me a lot in the last 20 minutes. Um, and I hope you have got some of that energy and are now inspired already to drink some. See you on the other side. Stop it. 
And we are back once again. Um, this episode is going to run over an hour slightly, but, you know, podcasts are for the background. I hope you're not listening too intently to this and just, you know, relaxing in the background because that's how grape juice should be listened to. Um, and I hope you enjoyed that that rather interesting, modern, slightly more poppy contemporary take on Fado because I found it fascinating um, because it still felt so traditional and so Portuguese um, and such a nod to that genre. But back to the wine... Um, you know, I take that that moment with the song, editing it in, and sometimes even playing it in full just to sort of give myself a moment with the wine, because sometimes when I open it initially or taste it initially, in the heat of the podcast, you know, there's no audience here, but sometimes I can get carried away by myself because of the performer development. Um, so I usually just like to sit back and sort of recalibrate a little bit. It's opened up a little bit more. And it's just blossomed, you know. Um, not changed necessarily, but it's just I've been able to sort of relax with it and fully appreciate it. I obviously just love this style and this concept and this idea so much because it's it's one of my favorite blends in the world, and it, it produces such a beautiful sweet wine. And this still has a great deal of sugar in it, which makes it redolent enough of Porto that I just obviously immediately love it. But I do think, I, I do urge you to, even if you don't like Porto or aren't really a fan of sweet wines, to try it because, you, you know, a lot of people come in when they ask for wine in the shop. They say, I, I want to, I love big full bodied reds, but I don't want to just always drink Malbec all the time. This is something that I will now immediately go to if they're willing, if they're willing to spend 25 and it will be worth it. Um, decant it for an hour and a half, two hours, seriously. I mean, this has been decanted for um, just over two hours now, and it's really, really coming into its own. And that's how long a Bordeaux takes. Um, you know, it's just something different. It's something luscious. It's silky, good quality and solid, but it is an undoubted expression of place and style and concept, you know. The Douro is less about terroir and more about searching for an idea, an emotion. You know, Burgundy and Bordeaux are much more about... Well, Burgundy is more about a purity, an expression of terroir. The Douro and, to some extent, Bordeaux are less about purity and more about creating a feeling, a concept. Um... Burgundy is more natty in that sense because it's more about this is representing this place because it's actually representing this place, you know, the soil and the viticulture. We're, we are, a lot of Burgundian winemakers take pride in the fact that they are really cultivating and nurturing with minimum intervention, but still, you know, with good care to make it drinkable, <laughs> uh, a sense of place. They are creating Saint-Aubin en Rémilly. They are creating Meursault-le-Limousin. They are creating Saint-Nay-Clos-Rousseau, you know. That's why it's put on the label, because it is so important, because they are making something, and they are marking it out as different from others. The Douro is much more about, we are creating this concept, this idea of Porto. Obviously, all Portos are different, otherwise there'd only be one house controlling everything. Um, and there are obviously different styles. But they're all striving for this one thing. This one thing that gives you this certain emotion and feeling. Um, 
it's less about terroir and more about the personal communion between you and the glass. Burgundy, there are, you know, while Porto is something that just satisfies me to the core, Burgundy gives me that plus an intellectual element. But Port isn't intellectual. It's emotional and sensual. Um, you know, and, and sometimes that is sometimes what you want. Um, Burgundy will always stimulate the mind, but Port will always stimulate the loins. <laughs> I'm sorry if that's offensive, but um, it's true. You know, I'm not saying that a good Chambon Moussigny doesn't get me going, but... Porto is just more honest in that sense. And I can tell you that Duro Tinto is equally so. So if you are looking for a, a beautiful big red that gives you honest, unequivocal, and overwhelmingly sublime satisfaction, then I really, really think that the Duro is the place to go. Look out for Duro Reds from a, for around the fifteen to twenty-five to thirty pound range, and if you can get if you can buy one for twenty-five, it's going to be good. It's going to be great. Most years from two thousand sixteen up to the present are all really really good. And while that may be a problem in terms of viticulture and you know uh, the wine trade and viticulture becoming a touch robotic and monotonous because of climate change. It does mean that you are getting a lot of quality, um, especially in regions like the Douro that love heat. Um, heat works in the Douro, unlike other places, because of all these thick-skinned grapes that just love ripeness and um, with the river to kind of temper things. Um, you don't quite get that in Burgundy um, or Bordeaux. And so that's why I think this is really special. You know, I'm very tempted with these wines to always break it down, always be intellectual, always... Why is, does this taste like this? But I do think that this blend, like many Portos, has achieved that idea and that specific satisfaction that you get from a Dura wine. And it's done it bloody well, but in a very, very unique way. So if you want to get this certain wine, if you like the sign of it, get it from St. Andrew's Wine Company. Um, it's called Invincible, Duro Tinto, 25 quid in the Portuguese section. Um, there are five left at the moment, but I think that many, many more will be coming in because... Um, I think this is going to be definitely one of, hopefully, a solid uh, mid-range, full-bodied red staple um, for years to come. And I'm just hoping that they make many, many more vintages of this because they've done a damn good job with this one. So, you know, the, 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 the section at the, the end is always a little shorter than the others, but... It's usually just a kind of chance for me to mentally round up things. The tasting section is usually a lot of rambling and groaning and, oh, it's so good, oh, what's that, oh, 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 you know. So I like to have this bit at the end to round things up. In conclusion, Duro Tinto is representative. It does bring a sense of place, but because, not only because of the taste, but because of the feeling that it gives you, or at least gives me. Um, and if you like sweet wine and you enjoy Duro Tinto, then you will love Porto. Um, and I hope that along with still wines, people still that venture into an exploration of Porto. Um, maybe even still wines, or not still wines, but um, table wines from the Douro may actually be a caveat or an entry through which people can discover Porto wine. Um, and I very, very much hope that will be the case in the future. Now... 
Uh, we have discovered Fado throughout this episode um, with the wonderful songstresses, uh, songstresses or fadistas of um, Amalia Rodriguez and Marisa. Um, but now we're going to turn to the, the music genre or the music style that I personally w- you know, used and was the musical accompaniment to my first stage in my wine journey, which was with Porto. Because it's, it, it's in Portuguese and Brazilian and Portuguese music, if not simply through the concept of saudade or saudade, are very, very interlinked and very, very close. Um, so I definitely think that this is certainly not irrelevant or incongruous because just as this drink is such a happy drink, bossa nova really is the happiest of all um, Portuguese music genres. So I'm going to play, you know, not something that's overly samba-y. I'm going to play something that is slightly more tempered or perhaps people could even say North American in its jazziness. Um, but it's a song called Discussão, um, or Discussion, sung by Silvia Teles. Um, and it's a really, really beautiful version. You can hear the saudade in it because there is a melancholy note, which is very, very redolent of the, that kind of melancholy wail of um, Amalia and Marisa. But it's still very, very distinctly Brazilian and bossa nova. So just as, <laughs> coming to a conclusion, just as Duro Tinto um, blends a kind of more accessible, recognizable concept of wine with the sense of place, satisfaction and ethos of Porto wine, um, so Bossa Nova in many ways blends a kind of more Brazilian, Latin American or American perspective with the traditional Portuguese concept of saudade. Um, so on that note, thinking about the, this sort of cultural blend, viticulturally and musically, um, which is something that we always strive to promote on Grape Juice with, um, with the music, with the wine and the jazz, um, I hope you enjoy Silvia Teles' singing. And we shall be back for the third episode of the second series and the 32nd episode of Grape Juice overall very, very soon. Don't forget to follow us on Grape Juice Wine and Jazz um, on Instagram. And also remember that we are now on Spotify. Um, this is our second episode on Spotify. But also the original Mixcloud page, which houses all of the original episodes, um, is still open to the public. So please go and search us on there for the first series. And all the uh, subsequent episodes, including this one, will be posted to the Mixcloud anyway. So that, that can be a kind of full, comprehensive um archive of grape juice but please go and support us on spotify it's you know mixcloud is wonderful but i'm sure for most people these days that's a kind of more accessible platform um to access the podcast on and hopefully we can get our ratings up on that and um spread the word um and as always follow the instagram for almost daily updates on what's been uncorked um tell your friends um and i shall see you very very soon for another episode Você pretende sustentar opinião E discutir por discutir Só pra ganhar a discussão Eu lhe asseguro, pode crer Que quando fala o coração Às vezes é melhor perder do que ganhar Você vai ver, já percebi a confusão Você quer ver prevalecer A opinião sobre a razão Não pode ser, não pode ser Pra que trocar o sim por não Se o resultado é solidão E 
vez de amor uma saudade vai dizer quem tem razão Prevalecer a opinião sobre a razão Não pode ser, não pode ser Pra que trocar o sim por não Se o resultado é solidão Em vez de amor Uma saudade vai dizer quem tem razão Em vez de amor Uma saudade vai Vai dizer quem tem razão Em vez de amor Uma saudade Vai dizer quem tem razão 